This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with former Australian ambassador to China, Jeff Raby. Jeff joined me for an in-depth conversation about his new book, China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New Global Order. Jeff's book examines China's place in the world and the strategy behind its actions. We also examine the recent diplomatic tensions between China and Australia and why the situation has become so bad. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to have with me on the show today Jeff Raby AO. He is an independent company director and author of a new book, China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New Global Order. It's out through Melbourne University Publishing, and Jeff has um, had a very important career overseas, representing Australia in many forums and in many roles. Most pertinent to our conversation here is that Jeff was Australia's ambassador to China from 2007 to 2011. He was also ambassador to APEC between 2003 and 2005. He was ambassador to the World Trade Organization between 1998 and 2001. And he also has a number of roles relating to the arts and culture, being the chairman of VisAsia at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and chairman of the Australia-China Institute of Arts and Culture at the University of Western Australia. So um, I'm really delighted to welcome you. Jeff, and it's wonderful to have someone with such a wide-ranging experience and obviously a great level of expertise. Thanks, Amy. I'm delighted to be here. And congratulations on your show. It's a big public contribution to spend uh, substantial amounts of time uh, discussing issues in depth like you do. Well, thank you. I certainly do enjoy it. And it's a real delight to speak to minds like yours and to read books like these. And I think um, I was really excited when I saw this book coming out because it um, is obviously drawing on such really interesting experiences, given that you lived in China for such a long time as well during your roles over there representing Australia. And given that, I'd love to first up delve into that element of your experience before we get into some of the hard-headed foreign policy parts of this discussion. I thought it might be interesting to set the scene and get a better understanding of how you experienced China when you were living in China and obviously as an ambassador, Australian ambassador to China. How did you experience that country? And I think this book is really interesting because you draw out your travels from many areas across China. And we often forget that China is a massive, massive country. And so obviously it would be hard to distill it into to one kind of answer, but I did want to get a sense of the flavor of your experience and particularly, I guess, the culture of the Chinese people. Well, thanks uh, very much, Amy. Uh, but my experience is, is clearly very unique. I've been very lucky. I've had a very lucky and fortunate career. But by chance, and I'm not a um, sinologist, I don't make a claim to be a sinologist, I've got a PhD in economics, and um, I was teaching economics at the Trobe University uh, a very long time ago in the early 80s, and an opportunity came to work uh, in Canberra, and I found myself quite unexpectedly in the Office of National Assessments initially uh, as uh, the China economic analyst, just at the time Bob Hawke had come to power, 
and recognise that the Chinese economic reforms, which had just been announced in the years before, um, would change China profoundly and would have incredible implications for Australia. And that was the world I landed in in the early 80s and started being engaged in China. And there was a period where, when I was probably the only professional economist in the country, actually on a daily basis, studying and analysing the Chinese economy and economic reform. And then luckily I found myself transferred to foreign affairs and posted when Ross Garno was sent by Hawke to be the ambassador in 1985. And from then on, I basically have been for the past 35 years uh, thinking about analysing uh, China, briefing ministers, briefing senior business people and trying to understand this extraordinary change and, and ultimately how it impacts on Australia. One of the things from those days, because China was unbelievably poor then and, and many people uh, also uh, outside of China were very suspicious of it coming out of the Cultural Revolution, a communist country, the Cold War was still raging. And there was a real sense of disbelief that um, China was ever really going to change. But a few people like Prime Minister Hawke, um, Ross Garno, as you know, a very famous economist as well, myself, uh, we, we felt that China had no option. It wasn't about ideology. It wasn't an embrace of the free market on the basis of philosophy. It was really about um, China was so poor, it had to do something. And Chinese people are so proud um, and China has such a great tradition as a major uh, power historically that um, it was such inevitable that what has actually happened happened. And the only other point I'd make on this really in terms of historical reflection is that we were often dismissed as being wildly optimistic about China. Naive was the main charge made against people like myself at the time. And I can assure you that China has far, far exceeded our wildest optimism of those days uh, in the 80s. So I had a good fortune to spend five years in China, uh, an unusually long posting in those days, and it included uh, Tiananmen Square. And so I was there on the streets and, and, and witnessed all of that firsthand. And uh, then I um, went away from China for a while and really for the next decade or so, found myself immersed in international trade, multilateral trade and multilateral trade negotiations. And luckily found my way back as a deputy secretary to China when I was appointed as ambassador in uh, 2007. And that sort of brings us up to where we are with the book, I guess. Um, but when I went to China, I had a couple of objectives. Um, one was not to waste a minute because I felt that in the five years I'd been in China, not that I wasted time, I just realized how quickly because everything's happening, it's so dynamic, um, that you just couldn't waste a minute and sit around um, uh, with expats. And that leads to the second thing, that I decided that I would spend as much time as I possibly could with um, local Chinese. Uh, but thirdly, which is something that was very difficult back in the 80s, I, I was determined to travel to every single province in China officially. And I'm the only ambassador to have done so, and still am the only ambassador to have done so. And um, that gave me a very, very interesting perspective on, on China. And I'm glad you mentioned the travel writing in the book, Amy, because um, that's drawn from those trips. Some were official, some were, were private. Um, but I think it helps to provide a sort of texture to the narrative and, and the bigger, broader political story. Finally, I, I really have had a third stint because when I finished as ambassador at the end of 2011, 
Uh, I stayed in um, China, set up a business. I've operated as a business person since then. It's been you know, quite successful, I'm pleased to say. And um, uh, I've now lived in China for 13 years consecutively. And had it not been for COVID-19, I would be still in China. But had it not been for COVID-19, I wouldn't have written a book. So there you are. <laughs> it is very interesting and also fascinating that you have spent such a, a long stint over there um, in so many different roles. One of the things I would love to ask about in your role as ambassador to China is in a top-level sense, what are some of the roles and responsibilities of an ambassador to China, particularly in the context of diplomacy, given that at the moment, as we stand in 2020, Australia's diplomatic relations with China are very much not the same as they have been in the past. And I, I kind of wanted to understand the role of the ambassador and the, the key importance of diplomacy, particularly with the relationship between Australia and China. Ambassador's role is a, is a curious one because people think, oh, you're just overseas representing your country, which of course you are, and it's, it's your primary responsibility. But you really sit between both your host government and your home government. It's important that the host government understands your country's positions, why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, you also want to seek advantage for your country and identify opportunity, uh, be that to influence the thinking and policies of your host country in directions that are favorable to your home country. And of course, obviously in a, with a country like China, and particularly the years I was there, one was very much focusing on uh, economic opportunity, uh, both for Australians going to China, but also uh, trying to bring Chinese capital uh, to Australia and, and, and Chinese customers to Australia's markets. So that's, you know, I guess, first and foremost, but there's another dimension to it. To do all of that well, you also have to make sure that your own country, uh, your home, uh, we talk about uh, uh, your capital, uh, mine was Canberra, that your capital actually understands the contemporary realities and complexities of the place that you're in. And so the information flow back from the embassy in Beijing to, to head office is extremely important. And it's one of the great challenges uh, of being um, an ambassador and a diplomat um, is, is, is to ensure that your, your capital, your home country, both politically, but also the business community and the wider community are really across the contemporary reality of where you are. And I think this is particularly challenging in China and has been over the last 30 decades, simply because the pace of change is so great and because China is so different. I mean, they have different uh, values about things like human rights that um, than us. Uh, their, their form and system of political and social organisation. And here you note, I, I don't talk about things like democracy. I think democracy is a very um, value-laden concept and means different things to just about anyone, everyone who uses the, the term. But but the way you organize your politics and your society, uh, there are many, many different models of it. And China's is probably more different than most countries. And it's important to stop or encourage people, help people not to, to think about uh, other countries through ideological blinkers or stereotypes. And unfortunately, much of the media because of the pressure to write and to get stories out, uh, tends to package information about another country 
in, in, in more simple um, stereotypical or ideological frame framing. So that's the that's a, a real challenge. And I, I, I never spent a lot of time with my colleague, the US ambassador, simply because they're so busy and everyone else wants to. But we had a good relationship and we'd have lunch occasionally. And uh, that was what we talked between ourselves most about, was managing our capitals uh, and, 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 and the challenges of that. And that's very important for your country that there are no misunderstandings uh, and the communication is clear uh, and well-formed and well-based. And one of the things I did as ambassador was when I got there in 07, I realised that China was changing in ways that we'd not really understood. Uh, up until then, most people focused their attention on the eastern seaboard of China, um, business and, 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 and government. The big cities, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, all of that, everyone knows about that. But there was a vast hinterland of China that was rapidly being brought into China's uh, incredibly fast economic growth and development that we'd hardly touched. And when I first went there, a province like Shandong, which most people in Australia then would never have heard of, uh, if it was a standalone country, would have been Australia's fifth largest trading partner in the world. And the same goes for Guangdong, although most people have heard of Guangdong, that would have been seventh largest. And it's funny because, and this helps to sort of maybe illustrate the point about keeping your home country, your capital informed about the contemporary reality. I remember once going off to Wuhan, we know that from the virus now, but uh, that's a population of 8 million, this would have been 2007. And the deputy secretary who I answered to in Canberra sent me a very terse message saying, what are you going to all these obscure places for? What's the interest? And I said, well, it's a population of 8 million people. It's got the fourth largest steel mill in China, and they're just about to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, the iron ore sector in Western Australia. But most, most people then had never heard of Wuhan. So that is the challenge. And, and, and that's, I found really exciting. I found intellectually very stimulating. And that's one reason why I went to every single province in China, all 31 of them um, professionally. Well, that's um, really interesting you mentioned Wuhan because it's also uh, now, in an interior sense, one of the central transport hubs of China as well. So given that the virus originated there, as far as we know, that obviously led to the spread of it as well, um, being such a really central city in the whole of um, China. Yeah, well, Wuhan, and I, I, it just came to my head then, Amy, as an example. But interestingly enough, when I first went to China, and my first trip was actually 1985. My posting began in 86, but I went to do a familiarization. And I don't know why I had this in me, but at the time I said, look, uh, fine, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. I had to go to Shenzhen because Prime Minister Hawke wanted an assessment of the special economic zone that had been announced a couple of years earlier. But I said, I really want to go to somewhere in the interior. And the embassy said, well, that's odd and the transport's difficult and it's we got no one there, and so you know they did everything they could to discourage me. Mm. In the end, we agreed that I'd go to Wuhan, <laughs> and um, there were hardly any flights, and so I went by train, which was great, but it was like a twenty-six hour uh, train trip in a, in a in a in a local train, whereas today on the high-speed train, I think it's about uh, three and a half hours from Beijing to Wuhan. But it really was uh, a, a, a 
you know, so far away from anything. It was an incredibly filthy industrial city covered in smog and uh, coal ash and so on. Um, but it's on the Yangtze. And Wuhan is very interesting for another reason. Uh, the first bridge in all of China's history across the Yangtze River was built in Wuhan. And I used to use it as a little bit of a trivial pursuit type of uh, question to focus people on just how extraordinarily rapid China's economic growth and development is. My question's this, uh, when was the first bridge across the Yangtze in all of China's 3,000 years of history built? Where was it built and by whom? Well, the second question I've answered already, it was built in Wuhan, but it was built in 1956, as recently as that, the first in 3,000 years, and it was built by the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh, how interesting. Yeah. No, but it also just focuses in, in a very arresting way people's attention on just how rapid everything has changed in China. Absolutely. Well, even now, even today, looking at the rural areas of China, there are so many that are not rural anymore. They've been rapidly developed into you know places with multiple apartment blocks and things that were just standalone homes and no longer that. So, you know, there's certainly been a huge uplift in terms of income, which you highlight in this book, particularly, um, you know, showing this huge growth of the middle class in China, but also a growth at the top end in terms of those who um, are, are particularly well off and wealthy in the business realm. No, well, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I don't follow this stuff anymore, Amy, but, you know, a big number of the world's billionaires are, are in China. But I think it's really the middle-class story. You know, you can do the sums and, 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 and probably adjust the numbers, but but the, the broad picture is this, that in fifteen the past 15 years, China has created a middle-class of around 300 million people. That is a population as big as the United States. And as I say in the, the book, I remember the phrase is something like, and, and this middle-class has all the attributes of the global middle class. You know, they spend a lot on high quality housing. Uh, children's education is absolutely paramount. Uh, and especially if you can get your kids educated in you know, top US universities, they all have dogs and, and, and walk expensive dogs every morning and that sort of thing. I, and, and I make those comments so that we realize that this is the reality of China and it's a middle class that travels globally. It, it knows what the rest of the world looks like much of it is studied outside of China. And that's happened in 15 years. But still China is a one-party authoritarian system ruled by a communist party. And these are the great, if you like, contradictions that are so challenging for analysts and so so challenging to stereotypes and, and ideologically-based assumptions. And that's why you really one really needs to be in China and to see it and to feel the change on a daily basis. That's so true. And um, I'll just quote that section for you. One of the particular statistics that we're um, broadly referencing is that China has grown rapidly to create the biggest middle-class society in the shortest time in world history. And as you say, it has all the attributes of the global middle class. And obviously, it's also reflected in those Chinese nationals who may decide to actually move to another country and become a citizen there instead and obviously revoke their own citizenship but they you know become 
part of another country and bring cultural features to these countries, their wonderful ways of interacting. And and I think, you know, hopefully Australia, for example, might start to have a deeper and better appreciation of Chinese Australians and um, and the kind of wonderful things that they bring to our nation. Absolutely, absolutely. It's something like 5% of Australia's population are from uh, ethnic Chinese background. Not all that's mainland, but but pretty much it is. And and look, ethnic Chinese have been part of Australia since the gold rushes in the 1840s. China is an integral part of who we are as Australians. And, you know, a very, very good book came out this year. It's called The Forgotten People, the, the soldiers, the Chinese soldiers who fought in the First World War uh, alongside... Um, Caucasian Australian soldiers. Their, their, their history has been obscure until really this book came out this year. It just, I make that point just to underscore the extent to which ethnic Chinese and China culturally has been so much part of Australia for so long. And that is the basis of a very strong multicultural society and, and we need to continually understand that and recognise it. What is important also when we deal with China, the People's Republic of China, is that we don't view the relationship with China purely in transactional terms. Sure, the, the, the trade and the investment and the business is extremely important for Australia's well-being and our current standard of living, but there's much more to our relationship with China than just the trade. And a lot of it's got to do with the fact that uh, 5% of our population are ethnically Chinese and have all those connections back into mainland uh, China. And that um, you know, Chinese... Uh, art, culture, cuisine have uh, vastly enriched Australia. And equally, although we're much smaller, we have worked hard over the last 40 years for uh, China and people in China to recognise that Australia has an authentic cultural voice. And so I said this at the press club two weeks ago when I was speaking on the book and asked, you know, really what can be done now in the current circumstances to try and lift the relationship out of the current hole that it's in. And I think a very big thing that we can do is do more uh, cultural activity. And in my own case, uh, I became a very substantial collector of Chinese contemporary art because uh, my language skills are pretty bad, so I can't really immerse myself in Chinese literature. Um, But visual art, I can. And I think it is an amazing story of a society that's gone through extraordinary change in 35 years but also that many, and this is very significant and not really understood in Australia, many top Chinese contemporary artists actually came to Australia and built their careers here. Many are still living here, but a lot went back in the early years of last decade and, and became global figures as a result of doing that. Um, so there's a very strong cultural uh, dynamic around contemporary art. It's not only art contemporary art, but it is one area that I've focused on. And it just underscores, again, how this relationship between Australia and China is much broader and and much deeper than the commercial relationship, no matter how important the commercial relationship may be. Mm. And um, it's interesting that you're now mentioning that kind of economic point, and that's something that I feel it was part of our conversation um, previous to the, the current situation we're in. We often heard that, 
oh, well, you know, um, Australia's relationship with China is economic and we get great mutual benefits from this relationship. But of course, Australia's relationship with America is about security and, you know, our long-held alliance, the ANZUS Treaty. And so, you know, these things were kind of held together as being separate features. And and then, of course, in more recent times, we've heard uh, government figures say things like, well, of course, we have very, very different values. And we've seen, I guess, a more, even more divergent um, separation. And we're even now moving into tensions on, on economics, um, substantial tensions that we hadn't seen to this extent for a very long time. So I, I want to ask about the way that Australia has characterised its relationship with China, particularly looking at the point from where you've been involved and how it's evolved, because that is a feature of this book, is how has Australia been holding up our relationship with China and how have we managed this growing supposed competition between the United States and China in terms of China being such an emerging economic powerhouse but also, as you show in this book, having vast amounts of uh, money spent on defence spending, which is particularly spent on internal disputes and security. But um, I did want to, to, I guess, get your take on how this characterisation has evolved and whether it's been a realistic reflection of our actual relationship. Yes, well, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott once described the relationship with uh, China, Australia's relationship with China, as being one based on greed and fear. And sadly, that's actually, to my mind, not a bad summary of the state that we've reached. Certainly now the discussion about the relationship has been reduced to a binary choice, uh, uh, a choice between sycophancy or hostility. And I think that's immensely unhelpful um, for Australia and and China, for for both sides, and, and in terms of particularly Australia's Australia's interest. Um, An important source of stimulus for this book was a book that uh, Professor Hugh White wrote and published in 2012 called The China Choice. And most people never read the book and they just assumed that the China Choice was Australia's China Choice, Um, that we had to choose between uh, our economic interests or our security. And for a long time, Australian governments have said, well, that's a false dichotomy. We don't have to choose between the two. Uh, Hugh White was not talking about Australia's choice. Hugh White was talking about the United States choice. And he said, a time will come when the United States, challenged by an ascendant China, the United States as the dominant power, will have to make a choice, as all dominant powers do when challenged by an ascendant power, to either provide strategic space for the ascendant power and let its ascendancy um, happen peacefully uh, or resist, as most dominant powers do, um, with the very real prospect that it could all end in war, uh, as was the case, of course, between Athens and, 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 and Sparta in the Peloponnesian War 3,000 years ago. And he then went on to say, if the US chooses to resist China's ascendancy, then that will have extremely serious consequences for Australia. And Australia was singularly unprepared for that eventuality. 
Well, the reality is, certainly from at least 2016, although the, the pressure was building before then, even as long ago as uh, Obama's pivot, which also was announced in Australia uh, in 2012, the US moved quite quickly and by 2016 had taken the view that China was a strategic competitor, had to be resisted and contained. And that was of was was their China choice, just as Hugh White predicted it would happen. And what we see today and the dire situation our relationship is in with China, these are the consequences that Hugh forewarned us about and almost said would be inevitable because of the way we approached uh, our foreign policy. And what we have done, and again, Hugh thought this was the most likely outcome, we have joined with the United States in uh, viewing China as a strategic competitor. Now, the thing here is that China is not a strategic competitor to Australia. We have no historical conflicts, no ongoing territorial issues such as Japan and India do at present and have had for a long time. And we're not a dominant power that's being challenged by an ascendant power. We have massive commercial benefits out of our relationship with China. Uh, and I've mentioned the cultural and other uh, non-transactional dimensions of the relationship, which are extremely important for Australia. And yet, um, because of things like you say, uh, values, and I think more sociological aspects, including the very close uh, relationship between our military, strategic and defence establishment and the US equivalents, we have um, joined ourselves to the hip with the United States uh, in its uh, uh, policies of resisting China's rise uh, and containing China. And therein, are the, that's, that's basically what the book is really all about, trying to understand how that happened and then what do we do about it. Mm. I think a lot of people, when we talk about these decisions and Australia's position on China and siding with the US, we don't really think about what the real outcomes of that are and the flow on decision making that occurs when we take such strategic sides and positions. And those are some of the things that you do outline in this book is um, Australia's position on China looking at some of the kind of key strategic initiatives that China has taken, including the Belt and Road Initiative, um, including Huawei's involvement in 5G networks. These are some of the initiatives that China has been spearheading that, you know, is very heavily tied to China's strategic interests and also to its identity, its plan to have relations with a broad range of nations that is cooperative and, and beneficial. And Australia, it seems, has decided to be actively resistant to some of these initiatives, but also, as you highlight in this book, to say that in many cases, Australia has had the loudest critical voice against some of these initiatives and has sometimes decided to be the first critical voice, including, of course, in recent times, COVID-19 and that push to have a, an inquiry into China and its handling of it. So I want to ask about these key points of tension and the areas where Australia has decided to take such a strident and early critical position on them. Why might we be doing that? Because on the face of it, it doesn't really seem like it's aligned with our national interests. I, I couldn't agree more uh, with, with your assessment of that. And it really, 
it's something of a puzzle, but I think it's very much a sense that we have needed to pay our dues to the US uh, and the US alliance. There's another element here, I think, which is important, and that stridency, if you like, in our position, and I do use that word on a, a number of occasions uh, to characterise how we've behaved, uh, relates also very much to the ascendancy of Trump to the US presidency and Trump turning America inwards and retreating from its position of global leadership, and particularly a global leadership based around values. Interestingly enough, I don't think Trump has ever criticised China on human rights grounds, for example, although we will see more of that under the Biden administration. Um, but I think that Australian strategic defence policy people, maybe even diplomats, felt you know we had a role to play, if you like, to fill a gap that was being vacated under the Trump administration. Um, because you characterize the, the the things very well. Now, South China Sea, the US, for example, is not even a member of the law of the sea. And when we talk about the rule of law globally or the international rule of law, we have to understand and, and, and move away from slogans and shibboleths, very much favored by some of our prime ministers, and, and, and look at the reality. There are multiple international rules of law. The law of sea is one. But the, the US is not part of UNCLOS, the UN agreement that establishes the law under which China uh, had a case taken against it by the Philippines in the um, in the Hague uh, Court of Justice. Of course, China never participated in the in, in the case. But for some unbeknown reason, other than, than basically filling a gap for the US, um, Australia came out with the most strident, hardline position on this, and and it just you know. How does this help us? What has it done? And and same with, you mentioned Huawei, exactly. We were the first by a couple of years to comprehensively ban Huawei. The UK, in, uh, which, is, which has access to all the same intelligence assessments, information, and probably a lot more than Australia has, only this year, a couple of months ago, under enormous pressure from Secretary of State Pompeo, only this year uh, comprehensively banned Huawei. Up until this year, for the last several years, um, they've only banned 30% uh, uh, of, of 5G networks from Huawei. And even so, they've made the announcement, because Huawei is so integral to the UK's 5G, uh, it's not going to be phased out for another couple of years. So if it's such a sort of existential threat to security of the UK, they don't seem to be in any great rush to get rid of it. But again, we were the first, and, and we made a big deal of it. And you also mentioned the Prime Minister's call for an inquiry into COVID-19 back in March. Completely unremarkable. Of course, we would all want an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, but he made it in a very specific context when Trump was beating up massively on the Chinese, calling it the Wuhan virus, the China virus. He made his call after a very publicised uh, telephone conversation with Trump the day before, and we did it without anyone on our team. We went alone. We didn't do the usual diplomacy, um, which would be to build a, co a coalition of like-minded people. And that could have been done quite quickly, given the, the, that it's such an unremarkable thing to be asking for. Um, and we didn't have to be so strident in our call or make it so specifically about uh, a criticism of, of China and its behaviour. And then we had bizarre things like the foreign minister just ramping it up even further, saying we we're going to have flying squads of uh, pandemic 
investigators hit the UN weapons inspectors. Well, she should have at least known that UN weapons inspectors only inspect weapons uh, with Security Council uh, authority, which obviously would not be forthcoming with China and the Security Council or Russia and the Security Council. So it's all sort of very, very strange and unnecessary, but it has brought upon us an enormous amount of grief. Uh, with anti-foreign interference, it came out in the Turnbull. That's another case in point. Perfectly good to have anti-foreign interference laws. They have to be, of course, against all countries who seek to interfere in Australia's domestic politics. And we see other countries from time to time interfering, including the United States, in Australia's domestic um, politics. We should have laws about this. But when the Prime Minister announced it, he spoke in Chinese, in poor Mandarin, and said that the Australian people had stood up, uh, the subtext being stood up against China, seeing he was speaking in Chinese. And he was paraphrasing Mao Zedong when Mao Zedong purportedly stood on the um, entrance to the, uh, the Forbidden City in Beijing in 1st of October 1949 and announced that the Chinese people had stood up against a century, uh, a, hundred, a century of humiliation and, and colonial occupation. I mean, the two things aren't even on the same plane, what he was talking about, Australian Prime Minister. But more than that, those words for the Chinese are somewhat sacred. And, 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 and the whole century of humiliation, whilst the Communist Party uses it for propaganda purposes, is actually true. And as the old saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. And this, this was really insulting. And ordinary people in China, when I say ordinary people, the sort of people I've mixed with, uh, educated, internationally oriented Chinese, they're insulted by it and saying, what is Australia doing? And of course, for a Chinese person, when a prime minister or foreign minister speaks, we're accustomed to them shooting their mouths off from time to time. For the Chinese, this is like, it really means something. It's speaking on behalf of every single Australian person. So it is complete mishandling of these things. Each one is perfectly defensible in terms of Australia's interest, in terms of uh, uh, protecting ourselves. You can argue the case for each one, um, rightly or wrongly, but you can argue the case. But the presentation of each one has been utterly confrontational and counterproductive. Oh, absolutely. Certainly the manner in which it's been done, as you've outlined, has been, to put it mildly, culturally insensitive. But one of the things that it seems that Australia has forgotten or is ignoring is something that you brought up earlier in our conversation, which is this idea that, you know, the Chinese people, as well as the Chinese government, but talking about these people that you, you know, yourself have just been referring to, have a deep sense of pride. And when these types of issues arise, it's not seen as a government to government tiff something that's, you know, meaningless or just people shooting names across the bow of a ship, it actually does mean something to people. Um, and the concept of, you know, to save face in China is another thing that is um, strong in in their culture. And so for Australia to be so ignorant of the um, cultural repercussions as well as the political repercussions, I guess, is what has been so striking in recent times and why I guess some people like myself included, you know, have asked you this question about why Australia would do that because it seems like they have um, really brought this all on themselves. And of course, China is not blameless in this situation, but I think the point of this book and what you highlight and you use great language around is that we must 
when we're talking about diplomacy, but also just talking about relations with other nations, look at issues through their eyes, through China's eyes. And that's one of the great things about this book is that you have really set out how China sees itself, the issues, internal issues that China has to deal with and the challenges that it has and how that means that its grand strategy is in fact limited and constrained and that the types of paranoia and fear and, as you say, greed that Australia has engaged in around China in more recent times is actually really quite misplaced and China is not seeking to overturn the world order. As you say in this book, China is not trying to turn every government communist or authoritarian. China is not seeking to rival America um, in, a, in a security defence sense. They have a huge inward-looking security and defence spend, which is really quite important. And also the other element of its defence, which you highlight in this book, is its focus on resources and, and shoring up its supply of essential resources, given it that it has actually outgrown that stage of self-sufficiency, which you outline. So I would love to ask about the way that you perceive China's grand strategy, which is um, part of the title of this book, and how we've got it so wrong, how we've actually misconstrued some of China's behaviours. So thinking about it through China's eyes, how has Australia, I guess, misconstrued and misunderstood some of these actions? Thanks, Amy. A big part of the book, um, the, the central argument, I guess, and it's the second section of the book, is, is called Prometheus Bound. And I've been turning these ideas over in my mind for a very long time. And I also realise that in some ways I'm fairly uniquely placed having lived in China for such a long period of time, being a Western diplomat, uh, Western public official, trained in Western economics, um, and essentially a Western worldview, uh, how the world might look from Beijing. And it certainly looks very different than the world when viewed from Canberra and Washington. But how I started thinking about this, I mentioned Hugh in terms of the Australia-China-US triangle, and uh, uh, at the same time, about eight years ago, another very important book and its influence on me came out, which was uh, Henry Kissinger's very fine book on China. And I devoured it. But at the end, the last chapter was very strange, particularly for such a realist in terms of foreign policy. He just asserted that China was not an expansionary power. And I thought, well, that may or may not be true. I don't know. But you can't base a security policy on assumptions about a country's future behaviour. And I thought, there's something going on here. I'm just trying to think it through. And then there came to me the notion of intent and capacity. So we could speculate forever on China's intent. Does it want to be a global, regional hegemon? We don't know. Some might say China has been an expansionary power. If you look at the Qing dynasty, China gobbled up vast areas of Central Asia and some of which are still in, inside the borders of the PRC, such as Xinjiang and Tibet and, and Inner Mongolia. At the same time, people would say, oh, no, but they, they, they were Manchus. Uh, they were essentially Mongolians uh, who, you know, when winter comes on um, and uh, it's a long winter and they run out of uh, uh, vodka and jokes sitting in the yurts, go around the world, you know, occupying territory, raping and pillaging. And so they're not harmed Chinese. That may be the case, but I think 
it doesn't matter what what you assume about intent you really have to understand capacity and that's really i think the, the unique contribution of my book um, and i argue that china is a constrained superpower prometheus bound because it's constrained by geography it's got 14 countries on its border and 22,000 kilometers of land border to defend and even though relations are very chummy between china and, the, and russia now there's a deep historical mistrust and both countries keep vast armies on their borders uh, because they never know when things might change and, and it's very wise to not trust each other. China's constrained by history because it's still an empire with unresolved territorial issues inside its border. Uh, we see today the terrible human rights abuses going on in Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, Taiwan, of course. And now, in, in my argument, my view, because of Beijing's ineptitude, Hong Kong has become another major uh, issue. And as you mentioned in your introduction to this section, Amy, um, quite rightly, uh, China spends more on internal security than on external. So although China's expenditure on external defense has gone up massively, but then so has the size of the Chinese economy and, and defense spending as a share of GDP hasn't actually increased all that greatly, at a much greater clip has been the growth of expenditure on uh, internal security. And it now accounts for something like 18% more than what China spends on external security. And of course, that touches on another important vulnerability Beijing experiences or feels, and that is these places like uh, Xinjiang in particular, but also Tibet, um, to some extent Mongolia, this goes to the heart of peripheral security. And Beijing for thousands of years has always sought security from Central Asia. So the peripheral areas uh, raise massive security fears for Beijing, rightly or wrongly. Uh, you, you know, objectively, you might say, no, they're just imagining it. It doesn't matter. That's what they feel, and that's how they act. Um, but then the third one you touched on, and uh, I, I, I don't know why this hasn't really been understood much more in the literature and, and written and talked about. China, in terms of natural resources, and I mean minerals and energy, basically, to, to, to power industry and the economy, China has been a very, very rich country. For, for thousands of years, China was self-sufficient and produced great civilizations, great economic development and great art and culture. And it did it all with all the resources it had and needed inside its territory. Then uh, after 49 and uh, Mao was going off the rails and was promoting rapid population growth as a form of national security and defense, um, there's suddenly a lot of Chinese. And that didn't sort of matter because they're all so poor. But then by the 1990s, fascinating, from the mid-1990s, China starts to get richer and starts to go through tipping points, one after the other. So in 96, China is still self-sufficient in crude oil. By the early years of 2000, it's beginning to import large amounts of crude oil. And by 2007 or 8, it's the global biggest importer of crude oil and still is today by a huge margin. We experienced a super resource cycle last decade when prices in particular of iron ore went through the roof. And I have a subsection on the resources chapter called the iron ore wars. And, and China hardly imported any iron ore until the early 2000s. And then it rapidly became a major importer. And again, once again, the, the world's uh, greatest importer. And you can go through all the basement metals other than rare earths 
which are on base metal, of course, but other than rare earths, China has become utterly dependent on world markets for every single thing it needs to power its economic engines. And all of those things until recently, and this is the genesis of the Belt and Road, not some grand strategy to create a Sino-centric order, but for security reasons, because all of this stuff that was coming into China and China depended on it and still depends on it, went through the South China Sea. You've heard of the South China Sea, I think, and the Straits of Malacca. So Uh, for Beijing, these things are of massive strategic importance. And there was strategic planners last decade talking about the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea as the boot on China's throat. Now, you compare this with the United States after the Civil War when it ascended to a global power. It had no uh, disputed territory. It had no hostile neighbours. Internally, it had no uh, unresolved territorial issues. And it had every single thing it needed inside its borders to support its economy other than people. And it sacked those people with education out of Europe in vast numbers. So the conditions of China's ascendancy could not be more different, could not be more different than those that the US faced. And so... That's why I conclude that whatever China's intent, its capacity to become a a, a regional hegemon, forget about a global hegemon, is massively constrained. Prometheus is bound. And when we look at China, we, we need to understand it is not an existential threat to our security. And our responses to China's bad behavior, it's throwing its weight around the South China Sea, those things we don't like, need to be proportionate and calibrate it against what the real threat is, not what the perceived threat is. I think that's a really wonderful point. And um, one other thing I did want to quickly touch on before we finish this conversation was looking at China's behaviour in a a global sense and its engagement in some of these key forums that you yourself have been involved in your own career is that you outline in this book the fact that they have engaged quite deeply with groups like the UN and that they you know, are the leading spender in terms of peacekeeping in the UN, that they themselves have set up multilateral groups that they have chosen to participate in rather than going unilateral or bilateral in many instances, so that they have been demonstrating themselves a kind of willingness to be cooperative and to not, I guess, be strident or one-sided. But one of the things that I really loved and I thought was a great point you drew out and that we perhaps forget is that, quote, in international relations, the unpleasant reality is that great powers do what they wish and the rest do what they can. And that really brought home to me something that was clear throughout this book was that, and also nowadays um, in Australia's reactions to China, is that there seems to be almost a double standard applied between the US and its actions um, and when it decides to ignore global rules-based orders and China when it decides to pursue its interest and ignore certain rules and that Australia seems to be in some regards punching above its weight and not realising that we're the second part, where the the rest do what they can um, and need to work around these great powers. So I did want to ask finally with that quote in mind and this kind of to me, a sense of a bit of a double standard that China has pointed out in some concrete examples is that how does Australia, being such a close ally of the United States and given Biden has now um, become 
president-elect of the United States. How does Australia see itself, I'm probably talking in an optimistic sense because I don't know if we'll come to this realisation in this government, but how should Australia or could Australia actually reset this souring diplomatic relationship? We don't have minister-to-minister contact in any meaningful sense at a trade level, apparently, as we have heard reported in the media. How does Australia grapple with this reality that great powers will do what they wish and we are actually needing to do what we can between two two vast powers that we have inextricable links with and that we need to actually come to grips with and to reconcile our position. Well, that's really what the third part of the book's about, and I call that Australia's dystopian future. And I call it that because we no longer will live ever again in a world dominated by a single great power that shares our values and forms of political and social organisation. We lived and developed happily under Pax Britannica until 1942 when the Japanese defeated the British or the British evacuated Singapore. And since that moment, we've lived happily until the last few years under Pax America. And that is that is clearly over for us. So we have to have a realist approach. And that's right, we have to understand that we just have to do what we can in this very difficult and challenging international environment that we find ourselves in. And, and that really requires, at the end of the day, diplomacy. I talk about we need to harden our military defence and I support calls for a higher share of GDP to be spent on military defence. And we need to harden our internal defences through anti-foreign interference. And I think we're doing a good job, I think, by you know cyber defence and so on. But ultimately, we can't ever spend enough money to defend this huge continent that we need to operate with like-minded countries in the region. We need to build coalitions. We were once very good at that, uh, but we've lost our way over the last decade. I talk about the need for a hedging strategy, which is very different than a containment strategy. It's not a distinction without a difference. There is a big difference. A hedging strategy, first of all, is very transparent and it needs to be explained to China. And we need, though, in developing a hedging strategy to work with countries that we don't like. Uh, We're starting to do that with Vietnam, by which I mean uh, we don't share their values. They are uh, an authoritarian one-party state run by a communist party with a poor human rights record. I think that those adjectives could be applied to another state in the region. Countries like Myanmar, who, you know, we don't like their human rights and terrible things they've done with the Rohingya, uh, however, is still trying to resist uh, becoming a, um, a client state of China in the same way that Cambodia and Laos have. We need to work with the Philippines. Uh, Duterte is a democratically elected president with an appalling human rights record with 85% popular support. This is, this is the, the, the new world in which we find ourselves. And so we require very flexible, adroit, uh, creative diplomacy We've done it in the past. We built APEC. We found a solution to the Cambodian war. Um, We created uh, the the Bali coalition on people smuggling. There's a lot that we've done and there's a lot we could do in future. And finally, I mean, I think we really do need to have a proper discussion. I think Australia is the right country to lead a move in the East Asian region. The East Asian region is the most dangerous region on earth uh, with nuclear weapon states and huge historical enmities and unresolved territorial issues, uh, we need a a regional security mechanism. 
it's so unusual that a, a, a situ a, a, an area of the world like this with these sorts of issues doesn't have an overarching security mechanism. And Australia needs to start to take that on and, of course, needs to engage with China on that. Just uh, on the bilateral relationship uh, more narrowly, as you raised it, I think we will get the relationship back on track in time. I think the statements made by the Prime Minister this week and uh, the Treasurer last week indicate that there is a willingness and a recognition that we need to uh, stop digging. We're in a hole. We need to stop digging. And I think hopefully this week marks the end of the digging and uh, we can need to, we will find ways to climb out. And one of the vehicles for doing that is to engage China on regional and multilateral uh, activities and cooperation. Absolutely. And to, um, to domestically treat our Chinese Australians with respect as well and uh, perhaps hopefully avoid the types of things that we saw with Erica Betts in um, the, the Senate inquiry asking Chinese Australians to declare their um, loyalty to Australia essentially, which I found was also unhelpful. I, Amy, it, it's worse than unhelpful, if I could certainly jump mm. in, but it, it's utterly shameful. And mm. unfortunately, the following week when the... Uh, Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs was invited to uh, make that comment that basically disassociate Australia from those statements. Uh, she simply said it was a tactical mistake. That well, that's not Australian Gosh. values. It, it was not a tactical mistake. And I, and I think, I think you touched on something very important uh, earlier, and that is the issue of face. And we seem to time after time after time make China and uh, make the leadership in Beijing lose face. Yeah. Um, but it, when we do that, we also make our own Chinese communities here lose face. We need to understand that these things aren't in separate boxes. Mm, and it's truly felt. That's why when I see these things happening and that we don't see apologies from um, the Prime Minister on Erica Betts' behalf or from the person themselves, and even a distancing of any kind of apology, as you say, with talking about it in tactical terms, that these do have ongoing flow-on effects and they were part of the list of grievances that China recently outlined um, in terms of Australia's conduct. And, and I know that it's not just the Chinese government who feels these slights. It is, as you say, Chinese Australians and even Asian Australians who start to feel alienated from their own country. Yes. Jeff, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. And I've got to say, um, having read the book, we've barely scratched the surface of the amazing insights that you provide. So I do hope that uh, people listening can actually pick up the book and delve into the um, great depth and detail that you provide on these various topics that we have discussed. And thank you very much for sharing your expertise and insight with your very unique perspective. I think it is something that has been missing and it's very welcome. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It's been a great pleasure. And, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. You really, uh, I think, have brought a number of really significant issues to the fore. Thank you so much.